Welcome to Wisdom for Life, where we sit through philosophy to find practical advice that you can use in your everyday life. Hi, I'm Dan Hayes, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Greg Sadler. And today, we're talking about the big topic of free speech, but we're going to put a different spin on it. Instead of talking so much about rights, we're going to try to reframe it in terms of responsibilities. The consequences of one's actions, even though you have a right to do them, does not uh, remove the the consequences of them. Yeah, and, and we... We could talk about how to be a good speaker in the, in the sense of being somebody who actually deserves to, to be heard. You know, I think there's a lot of people in the free speech discussions that want to insist on, oh, I have to have a platform, I have to be heard, and they talk all the time about their, their right, and, and that's important. But mm-hmm. a lot of the stuff that gets said under the rubric of free speech isn't particularly worth you know, saying or, or hearing, or, it, or it's just mean-spirited or, or in bad faith. And, and so I think it, it makes sense for us, at least at, at one point in time, uh, and maybe this is that point in time, to focus instead a little bit more on being a responsible speaker, meaning somebody who is accountable, not just in the sense of like people, you know, booing you or yaying you, but something that, that, that involves more of the, the person in uh, the speech that we, we, we use. And so I think this is, personally, I think this is an important topic and, and quite overlooked. I guess it's not quite one-to-one, but kind of the idea of you know, uh, being a responsible driver and that you have a... Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's not quite a right, but you, you have the, the privilege of driving. It's endless, but you know, there's certain expectations while you do this um maybe you know if we go to um uh was a life liberty and property for john locke that uh just because you have uh life doesn't mean that you have the ability to do anything with your life there are certain other rights that people outside of you have that you can infringe upon yeah, I mean, that's sort of a libertarian perspective that says that what matters most are rights and that, you know, your rights end where another person's rights begin. And they mm-hmm. will talk about them. They, they often tend to be kind of thin in terms of how they, they conceive of uh, the social fabric. I would go further. Actually, I'll bring up two things. So, so Thomas Hobbes, who, you know, Locke and, and all the other people who, who uh, take after him uh, use as sort of a, um, you know, a nemesis, you could say. Mm-hmm. Even Thomas Hobbes, in talking about what's required within the social contract, he says there, one of the, the laws of nature is that everybody basically adapt themselves to everybody else. And he uses the metaphor of how a stone that doesn't fit into the fence because it's got, it's got the wrong sort of corners, it's going to get thrown out, mm. you know? And, and I think that this is something that often gets left out when we're talking about speech, maybe because if I go to your house and I like knock, you know, I'm doing something that's uh, destructive to your property, it's really easy to tell. But when we're, when we're transgressing certain norms when it comes to how we use speech, even though we can do it, there's a lot of cases where we probably shouldn't do it. And I, and I do want to say, too, that I, I don't want to frame this just in terms of thou shalt not, you know, in terms of negative norms uh, and say, well, <clears throat> we should restrict free speech a lot more. I, I want to talk about what would be positive in 
being a good speaker and, and being the kind of speaker who engages with other people in positive ways. Yeah, they, we are like at base a very social spe- species, and thus there are lots of benefits that we have derived from being able to work within and with the group in order to achieve True. ends. And if yeah, you yeah. can't speak well and uh, get people, I guess, on your side, if that's the the best way to frame that, then you're not going to actually achieve your ends. And so this might be a utilitarian argument of like, what do you actually want to do? Yeah, I, I would say you could also have bad ends, of course, right? So we could say, ah, oh, let's all do hate speech against so-and-so and we coordinate together and bully somebody. So not, not all ends are necessarily good ends just by being ends. But you're right. You, you know, Augustine points this out. You need some sort of what he calls concord or peace, even in a band of robbers. They can't all be just doing their own thing and, and robbing each other. They have to have some sort of coordination. And if we want a better life, if we want something that goes just beyond, you know, looking at each other from across our walls, armed to the teeth in a Hobbesian way or something along those lines, if we want a true human life together, we have to be able to communicate in ways that allow us to connect as persons, to express who we are, what we're interested in, what we value. And there, there does have to be you know, a capacity for saying, no, I think you've got things wrong. But disagreement doesn't always have to be done in, in you know, such in-your-face, devil's advocate kind of jerkish ways that, mm-hmm. that the people who are often defending free speech see some some almost like value to it in. They, they, they seem to think that uh, either, you know, we have to tolerate this sort of thing because it's important for some reason or another. And we'll get into some of those those ideas, like with a marketplace of ideas and those sort mm-hmm. of tropes. Or they're like, listen, it's my rights and I get to express myself no matter how noxious and you know poorly formed my, my sentiments or conscience or whatever it happens to be are. So I think we want to think about where we want to move towards, what, what kind of things we want to emulate, what kind of people we want to promote rather than just... Um, saying, well, so long as you don't break the law, so long as you don't violate these really, you know, thin norms, you're, you're A-OK. Kind of like remembers, it reminds me of, I don't know, half of the episodes of Seinfeld, which are someone commits some sort of social faux pas, and so that sets off a, a you know, Rube Goldberg uh, series of events <laughs> that results in, you know, the, the nothing that that show is about. Yeah, and and curb your enthusiasm is just just sort of a follow up of that, right? And maybe an intensification of that. Um, yeah, and, and and they they have conflicts too about whether a norm exists, whether it's been violated, mm-hmm. whose fault it is. They 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 get into all of these really extensive discussions about those sorts of things. And and some of the thing earlier talking about remind me of the you know, access and, and who, who gets access and yeah, um, who, um, you know, just by dint of their, uh, who they are, their, their background, their, uh, you know, wealth, their, you know, reputation, or just like maybe even more basic, like how they look, they dress, yeah. um, 
a lot of times will prevent them from even being taken seriously at the very onset. And if you are automatically uh, dissing someone's or uh, discarding someone's opinion uh, based on those things, then there's also a, a lack of uh, speech and the reciprocity that is expected in that. Yeah, and you can say the on the flip side that something similar also happens where some people just by virtue of, you know, whose kids they are or being, you know, particularly good looking or saying the right thing at the right time to appeal to a broad audience or, you know, we could go down the line, they mm -hmm. get to talk and everyone else basically gets pushed out. You know, this is not something that we like prepared in the show notes, but um, there's talk about like an attention economy, right? Just like there's a, a monetary economy and all sorts of other economies. And I think that that's, that's quite true. There's only so much room on the stage and there's only so much time. You know, if you think about this show, the more we talk about one thing, the less we can talk about another thing. So we're always, as let's call it consumers of attention, making some decisions about who's worth watching and who's, who's not watch, worth watching or, or listening to or who gets to speak. And... Um, you know, qu quite often the the decisions that are made about that are quite arbitrary and unfair, I would say. Not to mention, you know, like the old the adage, it bleeds, it leads. You know, the idea that, you know, negative things and things oh, that are true. potentially fearful are, are one of our really big biases. And, oh, I think we spoke about it a couple weeks ago talking about, um, I can't remember exactly the author of the study. The conclusion of the study was that um, on average – we're about four times more aware of negative things than that we are of positive things. Mm. And so it's it, it holds our attention as well as it remains within our ability to recollect um, significantly longer. And so if you are just out there to try to, you know, push that like mental trigger of our biases that are just built into the way that we perceive the world. Yeah. Um, or, or then, exploit some, some issue that's arisen that's controversial and say, Hey, those people over there are terrible. You know, let's, let's focus on that. Right. Yeah. And, and so it, it, it swallows up. It's like a black hole of attention. Whereas there could be a lot, you know, a lot, you know when we're talking about like rational debate, that's, yeah. you know, rather benign. But if you have like, you know, uh, a riot or something and everyone's like yes and ignore the thing that's happening over here you know something like that was happening i i don't think a lot of people actually watch tv news anymore at at given times of the night but i remember back when we used to do that the bigger city you were in the more it would be dominated by crime stories because obviously there was more crime so like in a city like chicago there could be like a murder or a shooting each day and then people would get the idea that oh it's it's so much more unsafe here than it is in appleton wisconsin and appleton could be you know depending on on you know when we're talking about it, it might be more dangerous than chicago less dangerous than chicago you know you could you can look at the stats uh for that sort of thing but because the tv um, news cycle work the way that it would, you would get a lot more of that and and that would draw your attention. And also Chicago has a lot more news stations than Appleton does. And so if you want to compete yeah. and draw the viewers... Yeah, well, there's that too. Better. Yeah, yeah. We could hold, we could talk. I mean, we could actually do like a whole show on the attention economy sometime perhaps. But, yeah. But let's come so back to So maybe let's the, go back oh, to speech. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I think that 
typically, and I might be wrong about this, so it's not like I've done some sort of scientific survey of this, but I think that most of the time that people are talking about freedom of speech, they're framing it in one of two main ways, or they're framing it in another way that's that's even less productive. So one of the really common ways is to frame it in terms of rights and rules, to say, okay, mm-hmm. there are certain rules, you can't cross these, and anything else, it's your right, you can say whatever you like, and then, you know, that that's not going to work for reasons that we'll, we'll talk about. It leads to all sorts of crazy paradoxes and leads to conflicts. But the other way that that John Stuart Mill is probably the, the most famous proponent of is to say that there's a kind of social utility. There's a usefulness, a, a greater benefits over harms in allowing as much freedom of speech as possible and, and not censoring or punishing or however you want to frame it. Um, so there's, there's sort of like a deontological approach that's focused on rights and rules. And then there's a utilitarian approach that says, well, people might say really terrible things, but overall it works out to everybody's benefit if we, we allow this sort of thing, even though it can be you know, hurtful to, to some people. And then but there, I would say in oh, extension to Mill, like on liberty, he is defending the freedom of thought of discussion, but it mm-hmm. is in the collective pursuit of truth. It's not yeah. a, a freedom of thought in discussion for its own sake, but it has to have some you know ends of the pursuit of truth. Yeah, and that's something that I think a lot of uh, free speech advocates. Sometimes they they give lip service to that. They're like, well, you know, marketplace of ideas, it's going to work out better for all of us. And then they say horrible things. And you're like, I'm not sure that's really advancing the discussion here, you know, or you could say like, well, how many times do you have to like spout Nazi propaganda for us to actually have gotten the message that maybe this is one one thing we need to engage with, you know? Um, so, mm-hmm. yeah, it, the, the use of Mill is quite often itself disingenuous, I, I would say. Right. I would say so as you were well. Saying, oh, go ahead. I said you were saying. I think that in addition to these two more principled approaches, there's also some people who are just quite selfish about it. And they invoke freedom of speech just so they can do whatever they, they want to <clears throat> or say whatever they want to, rather. Um, so, you know, we could call that just sort of a plain egoist uh, approach to it. And, you know, these are usually the bad actors in it. Um, mm. And I do want to say one thing, though. A person could be a bad actor at one point in time, and then maybe they, they get older and they start realizing that the way that they're doing things is, is hurting people and they, they change their views about it and try to make amends. And, and you know, so we don't want to like condemn somebody once and for all for their terrible uses of freedom of, <laughs> of speech when, especially when they're, they're, you know, younger, but, but we do have to hold people accountable. And, and I think this is where the paradoxes start to arise because people who say, Oh, freedom of speech means I get to say whatever I want. They, they often don't want to accept the consequences that come with it, which means everybody else gets to say whatever they want, which could include, Hey buddy, you're a jerk and we don't want to spend time with you. You know, right. suddenly then, oh, you're not respecting my freedom of speech. You're censoring me. But that's equally freedom you of mad speech, bro? right? What, what were you saying? Yeah. You mad, bro? Yeah. 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 Uh, 
that's probably one of the most common techniques I've, I've actually seen too, like in YouTube comments and Twitter feuds and stuff like that is to accuse the other person of being emotional and responding, mm-hmm. you know, say, say in anger, right? You're, you're only, you know, you're being mean to me. You're, you're condemning my speech act uh, because it, it hits some button. Usually you can throw in like calling somebody a snowflake or uh, mm-hmm. some other slogan about facts and feelings. But really one is, typically, you know, cross some sort of line. And, and and even if somebody is angry, it doesn't matter if they're if they're rightly condemning what it is that you you spouted out, you know? Right. I, so surprisingly, I had one of those experiences not too long ago, and it wasn't even online. So there wasn't oh. that, like veil of ignorance or that veil of anonymity. Like, anonymity. Yeah. 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 Uh, what happened? Right. Um. I don't need to go into it too diff- too much, but it was just a an argument of asserting that other people were uh, emotional. Um, while the other person was perfectly logical, yeah, at least significantly more uh, even killed than the other person that was uh, making the assertion in the first place. Okay, uh, so there's definitely a little bit of um, projection there. Yeah. I mean, that that's so let's think about this in, in, in sort of free speech terms. I don't think that we want to, like, have some sort of universal norm where you can't point out to other people, hey, you're being emotional and that's affecting mm-hmm. the conversation between us. And if you're going to talk to me in that way, uh, maybe I won't talk to you right now. You know, mm-hmm. if you maybe I'll wait till you calm down and we can approach this. We don't have to like buy into the like the you know pure logic, reason, fact sort of sort of ideology that's out there that some people seem to have, and and those are those are people who are never like in very close contact with any three of those those things, uh, even though they use none those. of us are Spock. Yeah, exactly, and we wouldn't want to be, you know. Um, but I, I think that it's it's a perfectly valid use of one's. Uh, freedom of speech to say I'm I'm not going to talk with you. I mean, this is what Mill calls the social sanction. He he thinks that you know maybe everybody should have the capacity to say what's on their mind, but then you can like turn your back on them if you want to. You don't have to engage mm-hmm. with them. I think that a lot of people who insist on how important freedom of speech is. They're not just demanding the right to say something and say it once. They're demanding the right to say it over and over and over again. They're demanding acknowledgement and recognition from other people who don't agree with them. And they're trying to get something more than, let's, let's say it like this, they're trying to get something more than they deserve on the face of it under the rubric of, of free speech. Right, what do you think about that idea? Does that conform to our experience or... Am I off on yeah, this? Or? As, well, I feel like, yes, there's like an expectation that they should be able to say anything, you know, without any consequences and, um, and yeah, and, and, and maintain good standing, a good reputation within the group, I guess, that you're in. And it's a lot easier for you to uh, be in places in which reputation doesn't matter if you can be in anonymous places, you know, 4chan or Reddit or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, or even Twitter, if you you want to be getting new uh, handles all the time, that uh, oh man, that like really aged me. Handles. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I haven't heard anyone talk about a Twitter handle for quite a while. I'd, I'd forgotten about that. 
<laughs> breaker, breaker. Um, and um, you know, there's there's definitely like that once again that social aspect that if you're you're in a group and someone is constantly like if you're in your friends group and one guy mm-hmm. is constantly like uh breaking the the social norms within that that group eventually he's just not going to get invited out anymore uh, because he's you know kind of abusing his position and he's losing that reputation the entire time and and there's that that loss there uh, yeah. If you have anonymity, then you can just keep on, you know, poking buttons and slinging turds or wherever you need to go. Yeah. And... Well, that's that's actually a good set of points. I think that, um, you know, again, Mill, Mill calls this a social sanction. There's all sorts of ways of, of thinking about this. We could ask, well, is that a, a use of, of freedom of speech that... Um, just has to be respected just as much. So, so if I am on Twitter and somebody says something that's overtly racist, and I say, "Wow, you're you know you're saying something that's really awful," maybe we should boycott you, right? They call this cancel culture now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, am I transgressing? Am I going too far in in doing that, or is that a legitimate use of freedom of speech? I think that that if we're going to like open up the gates and say, "Well, we're going to be very." Uh, permissive, then you got to accept that just as much as as somebody being quite offensive. Yeah, I guess I would, I'd be, I would like to to break down cancel culture because th- there's definitely a portion of cancel culture that you could definitely call just a straight boycott, and then there is yeah. a little bit of that dog pile, which is not quite exactly a boycott in the traditional sense of the boycott. And I think that that well, a dog has pile is just calling people bad stuff back to them. Right. It doesn't have consequences outside of say Twitter. If, if, if you um, decide to get all your Twitter buddies to dogpile me, there aren't any, any, I mean, I feel bad, right? So you hurt my feelings and all that, but there aren't any real world consequences outside of that. You're not, you're not hurting but my, there are s- there are some like okay. you know, I, I'm taking extreme cases, obviously, and so there was the the woman I believe she made some joke. I can't remember what the joke was. Oh, the was one who flew to Africa, racist. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then and then was lost her job at the time that she got off the plane. In so that, that case, though, I don't. I mean, I don't think you can say it's the dog pile that that. Well, I I don't know. I mean, the it employer fires her. Made right? it more aware that people that was aware, like you. Know, Unless her, her employer was specifically watching her Twitter and like going like, well, should I be, you know, looking at all That's my employees true, yeah. to make sure that none of them ever say anything that like might be a little untoward? Yeah. Um, I guess it, it feels like sometimes the uh, response is greater than the infraction in uh, uh, originally done. It's like a, a miscarriage oh, of justice. Yes. Well, that I mean, that's interesting. I, I would say that any sort of, um, if we want to call it justice, in the sense of mm-hmm. uh, people getting payback or getting getting remotely what they deserve, it's always going to be pretty mm-hmm. crude. Right? It's, it's never, right. when it when it's something like people piling in on Twitter or on I don't know Facebook or some something else in social media. 
I don't think you're going to get an exact punishment fits the crime sort of thing going on. And, and, and we can also think, too, like, so let's say somebody's been saying a whole bunch of egregious things over time. Sh- should you, like, have exactly that number of tweets going at them saying, you're a jerk, you're a jerk? And, and maybe being racist is more hurtful than just calling somebody out on their racism. Although from what a lot of racists say, it seems to be very painful to be called a racist. You oh know? no. You know, well, oh, I, I think it's, I, I think I, it's very painful. Wilting for, Lily for, for, here. Yeah. It's probably more painful for people who don't deserve it than people who do deserve it. But people who do deserve mm-hmm. it quite visibly get very upset when you, when you uh, call them out on it or they, or they say, yes, I am. And, and they try to justify it. But here's the point. There, there's also like a, Oh, go ahead. A, 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 the, the, like the difference between like, you know, the idea being racist is really bad and everyone seems to agree upon that. And then like, there's the idea that as long as I'm not like overtly saying specifically racist things and oh, like, like dog know, whistling, uh, right? Yeah. Or, or like saying things that they might not explicitly know, um, is racist, but mm. is definitely racist. And yeah. someone calls them out on that. Then they get really offended because they're like, I'm a good person. And you're saying that I do something that only a bad person says instead of trying to kind of uh, remove them from whatever the perception you are is like I did an action and my action doesn't always make me. I have the ability to uh, learn from that action. Um, and that, that seems to be one instance where people get really offended because they don't realize the, the damage they're doing. Yeah, that that is quite true. I mean, and I think you can generalize that. Um about people engaging in in anything that's transgressing some some norm that they they probably should know about but don't know about right Mm -hmm. so if i i don't know you know when i was a kid and you might be able to relate to this too um there's a lot of debate about whether you should ever spank your kids and and you know the psychological data seems to be saying it's probably a bad idea to to do that Mm -hmm. you know but I grew up on a street where um, there were very few kids who weren't spanked at all. They just got timeouts or alternative punishments. And then there were a, a vast majority of us who did get spanked. And then there were kids who got beaten. And, and you can kind of tell the difference between some people would say, oh, it's all illegitimate use of force. But we, we would say, no, I mean, that over there is definitely illegitimate. This over here, I don't like it, but I kind of had it coming to me and I learned my lesson and I'm not going to do that anymore, you know. And then there were some borderline cases, of course. And and the, some of the people who were not using, cor- you know, corporal punishment might be just as terrible and abusive, just in other ways, emotionally abusive, verbally abusive. Anyway. Right. Um, what, what was the point I was trying to make with this? We, we You're trying to like find uh, degrees. Yeah, and so you know, if we think about um, somebody now in the present who realizes that they shouldn't have spanked their kids, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they they might have been in a position where it's harder for them to grasp that back then. It was still, if it was wrong, it was wrong. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we can sort of retroactively read that. And that's that's why we feel things like remorse and we grow as people and we say, holy, you know, I I, I was doing this thing before and I shouldn't have been doing that. Right. Um, That's almost part of the maturation process, I think, for most of us. I know I've got plenty of stuff where I I did, you know, and said boneheaded things um, that uh, I'm I'm happy I don't do anymore. (laughs) Yeah, I I absolutely agree. I, you know, 
a number of things, especially things that like would trigger my anger or whatnot that I, mm. I yeah, made sure too. not to do. And, you know, getting those out of my regular rotation of actions is a, a big boon to my overall well-being. Yeah, that's that's as well quite as the, true. that and the well-being of those people that I love and I live with or even have to work with. <laughs> yeah. I mean, ang- anger in the workplace could be a big problem. I, I, I think you wanted to talk about the um, paradox of tolerance, right, as, as an issue yeah. in, in free speech. So why don't you lead us through that? So uh, Karl Popper in the uh, early 20th century wrote uh, The Open Society and Its Enemies. And he's talking about this idea of the paradox of tolerance. And so it goes forth, unlimited tolerance must lead to the disappearance of tolerance. If we extend unlimited tolerance even to those who are intolerant, if we are not prepared to defend a tolerant society against the onslaught of the intolerant, then the intolerant will be destroyed and intolerance with them. In this formation, I do not imply, for instance, that we should always suppress the utterance of intolerant philosophies, as long as we can counter them by rational argument and keep them in check by public opinion. Suppression would certainly be most unwise, but we should claim the right to suppress, if necessary, even by force, for it may easily turn out that they are not prepared to meet us on the level of rational argument, but begin by denouncing all argument, they may forbid their followers to listen to rational argument, because it is deceptive, and teach them to answer arguments by the use of their fists and pistols. Thus, we should therefore claim, in the name of tolerance, the right to not tolerate the intolerant. Yeah, and so there is a kind of paradoxicality to this, right? You know, mm-hmm. intolerance, tolerance, where do they begin? Where do they end? You know, you're being so, uh, intolerant to the to the the intolerant. How are you possibly tolerant yourself? Yeah. So, for example, like if you take uh, a white supremacist that wants the destruction of a portion of the populace, if you are that portion of the po- of that populace, or if you care about any of that portion of the populace, there's no way you can tolerate that idea that is calling for the death uh, or maiming or or you know any other relocation place. or whatever. Yeah. yeah, grievous harm done to these people. That is an intolerant position that cannot be tolerated in general discourse. Yeah, and I think that you could extend this. I mean, Popper has some pretty extreme stuff in mind, right? But I think you could extend this to people who just are not going to carry out argument in good faith. You know, by the way that they behave, that they've got a position and they're only interested in advancing that position. Everything that they're saying is essentially propaganda or polemics, you know? Mm -hmm. I, I don't think that you have to give them the same mouthpiece or podium as people who are in fact contributing to if there really is a marketplace of ideas those would be bad actors within the marketplace of ideas you know they're trying to it's the difference between like an honest interlocutor and a sophist yeah and 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 you know it's not as if the honest interlocutor is going to be some sort of communicative saint right where they never ever ever say something out of anger and go a little bit too far and call somebody a mean name or, or something like that or cut them off or whatever. But I think we can we can say there's a spectrum, 
And mm -hmm. maybe, you know, once you reach a certain point on the spectrum, somebody should make you sit down and shut up, you know? And, and so, like, the, the example that I use from, like, recent history is uh, Miley Yiannopoulos, who oh. you know, over oh, and yeah. over and over again <laughs> showed that he wasn't interested in actually having honest debate. He was just there to get people angry. Yeah, which, stir stuff up, right? Yeah. And so there's there's no point after a while because that, that was his entire shtick. Um, that th there's no reason for you to even be talking to this person because there's nothing that you're going to be gaining from this. Let me let me give you a, a sort of a, a thought experiment um, having to do with these free speech issues and see what you think of it. And I'd be interested, you know, if people want to comment what, what they have to think about it as well. So imagine that there's somebody who just always says the same thing. They've always got the same shtick, right? And you've heard it already before. Do you, is, you know, do you owe them letting them say the same thing one more time? Or can you, is it okay for you to say, listen, buddy, I've already heard your thing. I've already rejected it. You don't get to take up more space in my head or, or time on my, my, uh, whatever my show or, or stuff like that. That's, that's, so there's, there's that scenario. Now, what if you, what if you're talking with them and let's say it is on a show and you've got viewers who haven't seen them, this person before, but you know, they're going to say the same thing. It's exactly the same thing. And it's, and it's something that's, that's really obnoxious and they're going to say it in the same obnoxious way, you know, mm -hmm. um, great example of a show that was kind of like that Morton Downey Jr. That, that I, I grew up with when, when I was a kid, it was this, this, uh, late night show. And this guy would like bring on all these people to have arguments with each other. And he'd, he'd talk really mean to them as well. And eventually he got in trouble because he, he faked getting beaten up by, by Nazis. And so that was the end of his show. But he would bring people on knowing that exactly what they were going to say. That's why he brought mm -hmm. them on. He was to try to get ratings. I kind of think that's the wrong thing to do in most, in most debates. But what do, what do you think about it? So you got the scenario of you're talking with this person and you know what they're going to say. Do you owe them another hearing of the same endless thing? S so the question is, is that the only thing they're going to say? Because it kind of like reminds me of that um, oh, the Roman okay, senator good. that like would talk about um, the sewers and then it always end with, <laughs> you know, death to, to the Carthaginians. Yeah, Car and, Carthage and must just be that, destroyed, yeah. Yeah. Um, you would talk about other things, but like that was a stick. You'd always like come back to it. Is, is this, is it solely that or are they talking about other things as well? Well, that's a good question. So imagine that no matter what the conversation is, sooner or later, they're going to bring it back to their, their, as we call it, hobby horse, you know, mm -hmm. this, this thing that they're obsessed with. Okay. So I guess if I was just having a, a like a one-on-one or a small conversation with him, then eventually I wouldn't have the conversation because we've already had that conversation over and over. Yeah. And I feel like there's nothing more to go about, but there's definitely a difference within, uh, if you're having a conversation or if you're having a debate in front of viewers yeah. and um and i think that there is um as long as they're not just trying to goad you as i talked about in my previous example um but uh they are presenting a, an issue that is their hobby horse that if you feel like that is a a, a bad 
position, then yeah. you now have the ability and a, an opportunity to uh, have a reasoned argument about against that position. And now you are uh, kind of counteracting his hobby horse to the audience as long as you can uh, you know, provide a good argument against it. Yeah, so there it's, it's sort of like, you know, the marketplace of ideas. Uh, you know, uh, conception where the good arguments drive out the bad arguments. It only works if we actually do engage in, in conflict with each other, or debate, or however you want to frame it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so long as there's there's alternatives being provided, and that's that's more or less, I think, what Mill had in mind in, in thinking that we should not just not censor most ideas in their expression, but not even censor intemperate, as he called it, expressions of those ideas, you know, people being jerks as they're, they're enunciating them. So uh, you had uh, an article here on our notes about uh, Agracia and Parisia. Uh, Would you give us a little rundown of that? Yeah. So there's this really nice piece in the Atlantic by Teresa Bajan, I think is how her name is pronounced. And she was, what's very helpful about it is she says, listen, freedom of speech doesn't just mean one thing. As a matter of fact, in ancient Athens, they had two different words for it that denoted two different aspects of what we often blur together as freedom of speech. So they had isagoria, and isagoria comes from this word isos, which means same or, or equal, and then parasia. Uh, and parasia is, um, we do sometimes translate as frankness of speech. So you may see it in, in uh, Greek texts uh, talked about that way. So isagoria was an equal right to participate in public debate, meaning that it, it's sort of like when you go to a town hall, you know, so long as you haven't managed to get yourself kicked out, if you want to go to the mic and ask a question, you can ask a question, right? Uh, they may not actually, you might not like the answer you get, but you at least get to say, say your piece. Parasia is being able to say what you want to, when you want to, and to whoever you want to. So those are two different things. And, you know, in a way, parasia is, think of it as like trumping Isagoria. And what she was pointing out, and I think this is quite helpful, is that sometimes some of the people talking about freedom of speech have in mind that everybody gets to actually express themselves. Sometimes they just mean everybody, or at least some people, get to say whatever they want to whoever they want. and Without it, consequence. That's the other part that goes along with it, right? Yeah. 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 Being able to uh, be a jerk if you want to verbally. And mm-hmm. I, I think there's, there's um, some real tensions here because let's say I get up and I'm a person who can talk for a long time, right? People will sometimes... Uh, have me in to to give a talk and they're like, hey, can you talk about this? And I'll be like, yeah, I can talk about that for half an hour, you know, or an hour if you want me to. And, you know, if I do that and and I'm not being attentive to anybody else, now when I talk, I'm actually usually engaging with the audience and asking them questions and getting them, you know, involved because I like I like to do that. But man, some people will just talk at you. I mean, we've had some university lectures like that, right? Uh, I don't know. Maybe when, maybe you didn't when you were um, a student, but I had some who would just talk never, never like, you know, asked a question or engaged us in discussion. Well, that's not fair, right? That's them getting to have freedom of speech and that's freedom for all the rest of us just to sit and listen. 
and not get to participate. And, and um, you know, so Isagoria would say, no, everybody has to have uh, a chance to talk if they want to. And so if you think about how freedom of speech works out in real life, it's not often Isagoric. You know, the boss brings you in and says, oh, I want uh, everybody to give their ideas. There's no there's no bad ideas. We're just brainstorming. And quickly, it, you know, you realize that not everybody's ideas are welcome and some people won't get a chance to talk. You know, um, there's you know, there, there's some cases where it doesn't make sense for everybody to talk. If you go to a rock concert, um, that is not an isagoric sort of thing, right? You're there to hear right. the band. And even though they ask you, how's everyone doing tonight? They're not going to like hand the mic around and like each, well, I'm doing pretty good. You know, oh, I just got off of work. <laughs> you never have the concert, right? Uh, so there's some cases where we don't want that. But I think in a lot of cases, the way some people practice paresia, it, it makes it impossible for there to be isagoria. And, I, you know, if you think about the, the extended mouthpiece that a lot of people have because of how many followers they have or how much money they have or having political power or being in a privileged class or something like that, they drown out a lot of other people's voices. Mm -hmm. And so like, it kind of reminds me, like, uh, the Agora and where people would gather in Athens was the marketplace and they would also interact there. And I yeah. wonder if that is uh, the, the root of why we call it the marketplace of ideas uh, oh. as an uh, etymological term. Yeah, you know, I don't know. Um, that That's actually a great question. I'm sure there is probably something out there specifically on that. I mean, I know that Socrates and Diogenes, the cynic, engaged in a lot of discussion with people in the marketplace. But I don't know that everybody in the marketplace was always happy to have them bothering them in the marketplace. Well, they, they eventually killed Socrates, so I'd say you're onto <laughs> yeah. something there for that. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's true. <laughs> what is the, the, the basis of virtue? Uh, I don't know. So, uh, well, he made people look bad, right? I mean, that's oh, that's yeah. the that's the story that's given about his older accusers. He asked them questions, so he's using his his capacity to speak, and he's putting them on the spot, and then they get to talk because Socrates will let you talk as much as as you want to. Mm -hmm. It's just that what you say is going to look dumb after he's done with you, and people do not like that. And then uh, Diogenes the Cynic would go around and instead of engaging in conversation, would just uh, blatantly uh, violate the social norms, you know, walking around naked and other things. Um, just to say, it's like, all of your stuff is a social convention. And, and why are you so uptight about that? Yeah, he was he was somebody. I don't have a lot of sympathy for Diogenes myself. <laughs> I don't know about you. Uh, I know that he's like a, a kind of a folk hero to a lot of people, but he just reminds me of so many nonconformists that I've known who are like so deliberately nonconformists. Mm -hmm. And, and <clears throat> you know, the the cynics called themselves heralds of the god. You know, like they're supposed to be actually doing. They had a higher calling. They're they're drawing people's attention to the virtue that they lack. But I think a lot of people that do that sort of stuff are just, you know, they're they're uh, playing around. They're and, and as a matter of fact, interestingly, in the ancient world, we see that uh, the cynic school they get made fun of a lot because apparently some of them were just doing that. They were just being kind of yeah. jerkish to be jerkish because they could, you know poke at people's um, 
things and criticize them and, and kind of get away with it. It almost makes me think of those like idea of the hippie going around or like that guy that maybe like <laughs> took his first philosophy class. And was like, did I just blow your mind? Like you saying, yeah, things. yeah. You know, the world is all an illusion, man. But getting back True, to our yeah. point here of, of Isagoria and Parisia, um, is then there was this like uh, evolution of this, especially during the Enlightenment, and uh, you know we've now um, have people along the lines of like uh, Kant and Spinoza and Mill um, talking about uh, the um, uniting of Isigoria and Logos or reason. So this is you know that um, equality of debate and reason uh, into a kind of an idealized con concept of free speech um as freedom for reason speech and rational debate so this is you know a kant um the the freedom to make public use of one's <clears throat> reason was the fundamental and equal right of any human being or citizen or you know i already quoted on mill earlier but defending the freedom of thought yeah. and discussion in the collectivist pursuit of truth or sorry collective pursuit of truth yeah, and I think that there was a sense that they had that most people, at least, would be carrying this sort of stuff out in good faith, genuinely trying to engage in discussion that was supposed to advance um, some values, right? Not not just being being mean to people or or engaging in in other things that that indulge our, our worst parts. And and I think that they were probably unrealistic in that assumption. That these would result in actual honest debate or what? Yeah, I, I think that well they were wrong about that. And I also think that they didn't they didn't really grasp how easily debates could be taken over by all sorts of other things that allowed some people to have a big mouthpiece and other people just to get kind of pushed to the side. Mm-hmm. You know. This was an ideal that they were espousing, and it gets used as an ideal. It gets abused as an ideal by people who are are hiding behind it in order to say that they should be able to say whatever they want, and they shouldn't have any consequences of other people like you know not liking it or mm-hmm. or responding to them in kind. Um, so, do you think the ideal itself is flawed, or just the usage of the ideal? That's a good question. I, I mean, I. I think that the ideal, it's not that it's simply flawed, it's that it's inadequate. It's that it doesn't provide you with enough. You need to have, there's there's two sides to this. One is that um, you've got something kind of similar to the free rider problem, right? Mm-hmm. With, with, with uh, any sort of public the utility. Tragedy of commons. Yeah, and so you've got to find some way to deal with that. But I think in order to make it work, you also need to have some people who genuinely are trying to make the discourse better. And so this is where, again, I think it's useful to talk less about rights and more about responsibilities. And what is it to be a responsible person with your speech. And I think part of that is accepting responsibility for what you say. Socrates is a prime example there, right? He he did, in fact, um, allow them to execute him, which involved him actually drinking the poison. Um, I'm not he, saying... He had an out. He could have gone and uh, lived at, what, a friend's villa? Yeah, exactly. Credo had bribed the guards and was like, hey, come on, let's get the hell out of here. Uh, right. They don't like you. Uh, they treated you unfairly. And Socrates was like, well, let's consider this. And by the end of it, 
He's not going anywhere. So that's part of it. I think you also, you know, being responsible would mean taking responsibility for being well-informed. Maybe there's a duty if you, you know, at least in certain discussions, like if you're going to talk about COVID-19, you need to have actually like done some basic research. And that doesn't, research is not watching a single YouTube video or something like that. It's, it's, you know, learning about what public health is and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, also Maybe making have a little basic skepticism so you know how to actually find good information. That's important too. What we call information literacy. You know, um, and then I think not every debate needs to be hashed out at every time. So there's a prudence about what we're going to talk about at what time. There's some topics that we probably shouldn't talk about with uh, certain people or with with children. Um, if we're going to treat things that are um, controversial, it's it's it's. You know, there's there's good ways to do that and there's bad ways to do that. There's ways that are going to create more conflict. Uh, and then there's ways that are going to try to create uh, bridges. And then, you know, communicating with other people in good faith, that's really important. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's part of being a responsible, uh, yeah, an honest interlocutor, not just trying to, like, you know, get something out of it yourself. Um, what else do you and, think needs to go into that? And, and just to, you know, Interlocutor, we said it several times, and I want to make sure that we mm. define that term. And interlocutor is someone that is un- debating in good faith uh, and that you're uh, trying to honestly give your opinion and, and work out the truth of something. The, the, the idea is not to win the argument, but to come to a, a better understanding through argument. Yeah. And, and so, like... Part of this is also you should, you know, if you're going to actually engage in argument, you should have at least a passing understanding of what fallacious reasoning is and some of the like the basic ones. And if you know what fallacious reasoning is, it doesn't mean that you're bad or wrong for making these arguments, but that uh, they are bad arguments. There are their arguments, uh, not bad arguments, but arguments that will not always result in true answers. And yeah, they so often lead us away from the truth, right? Is a way yeah. to put it. Um, and and you can come to the right conclusion for wrong reasons. And the reason and why we want to have non-fallacious arguments is we want arguments that will always bring us to true answers if we argue them correctly. And also, it's not something that is like bad about you if you happen to fall into these that if someone calls you out on that argument it's like oh i've now been given the ability to think and reason about this in a better way to find a better argument yeah that's that's where a lot of people have quite a a hard time right myself included actually I'll, i'll certainly cop to that nobody really likes to hear that you're wrong in the way that you've thought something out but it does, you know, if you can actually be open to it, then you can improve what you're, you're thinking. And, and not just in terms of like, you know, theoretical matters, but very practical matters. You know, if you think that the way to interact with people is, to, here's a prime example. My dad used to tease us a lot when we were kids. And it was in part because he was kind of immature that way. I mean, he died when he was only 36. So obviously he didn't, he didn't get much of a chance to, to develop. And he probably got that idea from his dad that that's the way to show love to people. It would drive us nuts. 
you know, we didn't like it, but both of us kids, me and my sister picked it up and it took a long time to break out of that. And I found myself doing that even with my kids. And then people, and I wasn't the one who was like, oh, Greg, you're really doing the wrong thing. It was other people having to say, listen, dummy, you're doing the same thing that you say you don't like, right? Nobody yeah. likes to get called out on that sort of thing. But when it comes to communicating with other people, we do need to... You know, we do need to take the raw material that we are with its jagged edges and refine it a bit. Mm -hmm. oh, once in the future, we'll all be nice rounded corners like all those iPhones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We'd all have to come out of some factory probably for that. Uh, or let's go to you know a nice rounded stone in the ocean that's a lot more organic. True. Yeah. But it takes a lot longer, right? Mm-hmm. And but, if, you know, you're, if, good if you good things worth waiting for, right? If you have motion so, sickness, that's not going to work for you, though. <laughs> so, uh, what's our practice this week, Greg? So we can just call it prudence in use of speech, and I, I think this could be this is something that does come out of virtue ethics, um, but doesn't necessarily have to be tied to any particular school. So. When you're tempted to wade into some discussion where you think that people are getting things wrong or using their freedom of speech wrongly, consider, just like take a pause and consider, is this the place where I myself need to take a, a stand? Is this the right thing for me to do? Maybe it is. And if it is, well, then go ahead and do that. You know, If you're the only person who can speak up for the person who's, say, being bullied, um, and you know, you might actually not just speak up with them. You might talk to the people who are standing on the side and say, Hey, aren't you going to do anything about this? You know, this is wrong. Not just confront the bully. Um, if that's the case, then go ahead and do that. But in a lot of cases, I think we find that it's not, it's not the, the right time or we don't have to be the one who's the, you know, the defender of all values or whatever it is. And then what we can do, instead of just saying, okay, I'm gonna withdraw from this and like go and eat chips and do nothing, we can deliberately use our capacity for speech productively elsewhere. You know, if we, if we really think that we need to be involved in standing up for something, there's plenty of things we can stand up for. We have all sorts of opportunities. Now that we have, you know, we all live in the internet, um, you could just do a Google search and, and find something you could stand up for. If it's, you know, the rights of uh, animals, I'm sure there's plenty of uh, places you could go to, to do that. If it's, um, I don't know, saying that uh, we should uh, celebrate a particular holiday or not celebrate a particular holiday. There's places you can go for that. We could come up with endless examples. So that's that's the basic yeah. idea. It's it's an extension of the virtue of prudence, you know, using the resources that we have rightly. It kind of it comes immediately to mind, like the Janes, in which uh, oh. at least the, the most devout of them will wear veils over their faces in order to make sure that they're not even inhaling small insects because they they have this incredible uh, reverence for all living things and and will sweep the the street in front of them and you know some people only do this at like high holidays but there are definitely Jane monks who will do this at a very almost constant level and if you're gonna go out and like protest and say everyone needs to do exactly what the Janes the most devout Janes are doing all the time because I have this ideal of that anything that might um be able to feel pain that 
or, or is alive has uh, a fundamental uh, right to life and that they uh, that none of our actions should ever even accidentally harm them, then I don't think you're going to get a lot of people to actually buy onto your campaign. No, that's that's a very tough one. The Jains are probably, that's one of the most difficult spiritual paths just in that extent to follow. And and you, when you read, I, I, you know, I used to teach about them and when I taught world religion classes and I read some giant scriptures and man, the stuff that the renunciants do is intense, you know. Um, but coming, but coming back to this, I mean, that's that's very far removed from where we are. You know, there might yeah. actually, there might be some point to people getting their feelings hurt. Some of the time, it could lead to mm-hmm. useful um, confrontations. You know, reconsiderations of their own position. I know I benefited quite a bit, even though I didn't realize it at the time, from people telling me that I was wrong and being a jerk. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, but it, but it, it can be done in different ways. You know, this is where we, again, come to the responsibility of speech. Just because we can say something doesn't mean that we automatically should say it or we should say it in the way that we want to say it. We should probably think about the other person. Uh, and there's, there's a lot of cases where perhaps even the people who are being jerks, we don't have to necessarily fight fire with fire, you know? I wonder, is there... It seems like there could be a a meeting in the middle somewhere. I don't know if it should be like eighty twenty or something, um, but of like there are certain things that I guess you can't control, and you can't control the other people's mm. actions around you right. um, and their speech. And so there's you know th- there's definitely things that are very rude and and socially inappropriate, um, but there's also the things that are just kind of annoying and that does not hit the same level of offense as other things. And so right. you should probably be aware of that and try to modulate to what is actually the things that are beyond the pale. You when we're calling things out, for example. Yeah, or or when someone is, is talking to you and saying like, oh, you, I didn't ah. enjoy the way yeah, yeah, that you spoke to me. Okay. Yeah, that makes good sense. Well, I see that we're, we're just about at the end of our time. So we've got the outgoing words that are commonly attributed to Mark Twain earlier, much older in its original <laughs> formation. But never argue with an idiot. He'll drag you down to his level, and he'll beat you with experience. 